Gracious and loving God, we thank you for the gift of this new day. We ask your blessing upon us as we study the book of Exodus chapter six and seven today, that we would learn something new about what it means to be your liberated people, and that we would emerge with a clearer vision of who needs to be liberated and how we can participate in that mission. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Indeed, by a mighty hand, he will let them go. By a mighty hand, he will drive them out of his land. God also spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they resided as aliens. I have also heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are holding as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their cruel slavery. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his land. But Moses spoke to the Lord, the Israelites have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, poor speaker that I am? Thus the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them orders regarding the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, charging them to free the Israelites from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, I will lay my hand upon Egypt and bring my people, the Israelites, company by company out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a wonder, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and they became snakes. But Aaron's staff swallowed up theirs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand by at the river bank to meet him and take in your hand the staff that was turned into a snake. Say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you to say, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. See with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall be turned to blood. The fish in the river shall die. The river itself shall stink, and the Egyptians shall be unable to drink water from the Nile. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over its rivers, its canals, and its ponds, and all its pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the whole land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and of his officials, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the river, and all the water in the river was turned into blood, and the fish in the river died. The river stank so that the Egyptians could not drink its water, and there was blood throughout the whole land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians had to dig along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the river. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. All right. Thank you for that wonderful reading. And so at the beginning of Exodus chapter six, the Lord reminds Moses that he will, with a mighty hand, bring the people out of the land. And God reminds Moses who God is. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. And so uh, this, this little bit here about God Almighty being different from the Lord, uh, God Almighty, the Hebrew is El Shaddai. El is God. Uh, Shaddai might mean mountain. It's it's a little unclear on what that means. So God of the mountain, it's used uh, five times in the patriarchal tales, actually. But the, the idea here is that there are different names in the Old Testament ascribed to the one God. And uh, here, El Shaddai is used. And there's this interesting reference about how how God did not make himself fully known to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is kind of a funny thing to say, because if you read the book of Genesis, God is very invested and involved in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, as I've thought about the meaning of this, I did not make myself fully known to them. One of the things that I find interesting in some of the commentaries I read is that there is a fuller revelation of God's name in the book of Exodus because liberation is the central theme. Who is God but a liberator? And the fullness of God's liberation was not revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, because there really wasn't a need for liberation on the same scale 
as the Hebrews need it now that they are an enslaved people. And so the idea of God making himself fully known now, I think the implication is that God is not fully known until we know God not only as creator, not only as establisher of the covenant, not only as the promise of, you know, the, the one who promises the good land, but the fullness of God's name is known as the liberator. But God reminds Moses that he did establish his covenant with the patriarchs so that the whole point was to give them the land of Canaan. And so they are being liberated from bondage to go to this good land, the land of Canaan, uh, that is a land that is occupied. And so once they are liberated from Egypt, they will have a fight before them. And as we've discussed previously, I think there's a lot of symbolic power there. Uh, whenever we think about our own liberation from sin and death, God saves us, but God doesn't save us to sit on the couch and to just be comfortable our whole lives. God saves us, but then we we find that we have a fight. You know, we we fight the powers and principalities to use Paul's language. We fight our inner demons. We fight our own complacency. And so once God liberates us, that's just the beginning of the fight. There's this interesting verse here, Exodus 6, 5, where God says the Egyptians are holding the Israelites as slaves. And there, there have been some questions in this study about the historicity and the historical evidence that the people of Israel were actually enslaved by Egypt and whether or not they were indeed liberated. And of course, if you do a big archaeological dig, we know that the Egyptians had slaves. A lot of it can be verified historically, but the actual enslavement of the Hebrews is not something that your average secular archaeologist has found evidence for. And so I found this quote really interesting by Robert Alter, who's a Jewish scholar. He writes, It is hard to imagine that a nation would invent a story of national origins involving the humiliation of slavery without historical memory. Basically, he says, no people would ever make this up, that if you were going to make up your own origin story, you wouldn't place yourself as slaves for 430 years in a shame and honor culture that is humiliating, that is shameful. Uh, and so the best uh, evidence we have for the enslavement of the Israelites or the Hebrews and their liberation from Egypt is the fact that no one on earth would ever make such a thing up. Uh, it would be a shameful thing to make up about one's origins. And so the most likely scenario, according to Robert Alter, is that it has strong historical roots. Uh, in verse five, uh, God says, I've remembered my covenant. And we've often talked about remembering being the heart of not just Hebrew piety, but also Christian piety. Uh, Christians uh, drink the blood of Christ and eat his body in the Eucharist every Sunday. And we do this, as Jesus said, to remember me. Um, but uh, what I want to uh, highlight here is that this act of remembering is not just about your frontal cortex calling to mind certain events, that it's actually a more holistic word. And so we think about how Paul talks about the body of Christ as one body with many members uh, but what sin does is disrupt that body. And so we are, in essence, a body of broken bones. And so remembering is what remembers or what puts back together 
the members of God's family. And so whenever we have that word remember, don't just think about um, doing something to recall a historical event to mind. Think about God putting back together the members of God's family. God remembers through the covenants. Um, in verse seven, God says, I will take you as my people. Uh, that is marriage language. Um, often in a marriage uh, ceremony, we'll say, do you, John, take Emily to be your wife? Whenever that word take is used, that has strong uh, allusions to marriage. And the reason I point that out is because uh, whenever Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go, which is the familiar refrain we have in movies and songs, um, a better translation of the Hebrew is divorce my people. That's what the Hebrew actually means, divorce my people. The basic idea is that the Hebrews are married to an abusive husband, Pharaoh, who enslaves them. And so we have to have a divorce from Pharaoh so that the Israelites can marry um, the God who loves them, the God who claims them as his own. And of course, the idea uh, of marriage is just the most central motif of scripture in a sense. I mean, what is the book of Genesis at first, but a marriage between uh, Adam and Eve, right? Um, but by the time we get to the New Testament, God has said multiple times, I want to marry my people. Jesus's first miracle is at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Uh, the church is often called the bride of Christ. And then in the book of Revelation, the whole Bible ends with God marrying his people and with the marriage between heaven and earth. And so I will take you as my people. This is marriage language and points to this biblical motif of God wanting to marry his people. Um, so Moses tells all this to the Israelites, but in verse nine, we're told they can't listen because of their broken spirit. Moses told this to the people, but they would not listen because of their broken spirit. The Hebrew is not broken spirit, but it is shortness of breath. And the Hebrew word is ruah, which means breath. It means wind. It means spirit. And so you go back to Genesis chapter one, and what is it that is hovering over the chaos and the creation, but the ruah of God, the spirit, the breath of God. And so in creation, there is the fullness of breath that leads to the beauty of the garden and the beauty of creation. And so part of what's being hinted at here is that whenever we are not married to the right person, metaphorically speaking, uh, whenever we are enslaved, um, it's almost like there is a perversion of creation. Uh, it's not so much a broken spirit. There's a shortness of breath. There is a um, not enough of God's creative power in them. And that's what slavery does, whether it's real institutional slavery uh, or whether it's being enslaved by some sort of system or ideology, it, it breaks our spirit. It takes the breath out of us and we can't fully listen. And I think the implication there for Christians uh, is that, you know, before people can truly hear and receive God's goodness and grace, there has to be enough ruah 
enough spirit uh, and that people can be traumatized, they can be abused, uh, they can be in uh, situations where they don't have enough food or, or safety or support. And in those instances, uh, if there's that shortness of breath, that broken spirit, um, we can't fully hear God's message. And so whenever we think about the call to do justice, for instance, part of that work is bringing God's ruah, um, God's breath, God's spirit uh, to people who need it so that they can hear God's grace and receive God's love. Um, in verse 12, Moses is still at his old game of basically you know, convincing the Lord or trying to that he's the wrong guy for the job. He says, how then shall Pharaoh listen to me, poor speaker that I am? Again, that is not an accurate translation. Um, the Hebrew is, I am uncircumcised of lips. My lips have not been circumcised. And so we remember that very strange story, I think from Genesis chapter four, the, the bridegroom of blood story where God tries to kill Moses, but Zipporah uh, circumcises his son and basically uh, touches um, Moses with that, that bloody foreskin and that saves um, Moses. There, there, there's an allusion to that story uh, of circumcision and it's, Moses's lips that have not been circumcised. Um, and so uh, the Lord basically sends Aaron with Moses, tells them to go to Pharaoh, and off they go. And so um, whenever they do this, um, Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh, and uh, they're told to take their staff and throw it down. It's going to become a snake, and we've already uh, visited that first display of power a couple chapters ago. But once they do this, Pharaoh summons his wise men and they do the same by their secret arts. Um, a better translation of the Hebrew is spells. It's tied to a word that means to flame out. And thus it's really implying the fire and flash technique of a really good illusionist. Uh, and so this is sleight of hand. It's not real power. It's not that the magicians are tapping into demonic power. It's that they're really good illusionists. And so they do a good job of mimicking whatever Moses and Aaron are able to do. But then, of course, Aaron's staff, presumably in the form of a snake, uh, swallows the staff of the wise men and the sorcerers. And Pharaoh sees this, but his heart is hardened and he chooses not to listen and so um, the next day or so, uh, Pharaoh's, you know, going about his business and he goes out to the water to stand by the riverbank and uh, there Moses and Aaron meet him by the riverbank. And, and if we go back in time, 80 years, remember Moses was placed on this same riverbank in an ark or a basket left to die but he is miraculously saved. He is drawn out of the water. The name Moses means to draw out. And so there's a coming full circle. No longer is there the helpless infant by the riverbank, you know, waiting to be saved, but there is now the mature adult commissioned by God to partner with God in his saving mission, right? So in 80 years, 
Moses has become the one who uh, has been saved to partnering with God to help save others. And so I think there's a little bit of a lesson there for us that we are saved, uh, we are rescued to be part of the rescue team. Uh, And so Moses meets Pharaoh by the riverbank, and uh, we then go to the next plague, which is that the Nile shall be turned to blood. Uh, In the Bible, there are really three meanings, uh, symbolic meanings associated with blood. Number one, blood is the source of life. Uh, Number two, it is an agent of redemption. So we're saved by the blood of Christ or the people will be saved when the blood is uh, placed on the doorposts. But then number three, it's a token of violence and death, right? Blood is not just about life, it's about death. And in this third sense, is the blood here symbolic? The blood here is not redemptive blood or life-giving blood. Uh, It is the blood of death. And remember, the Nile is the source of the people's life. This is their water source, And so I think something deeper is being said here about uh, what is the source of our life? What is the sustenance of our life? For the Egyptians, it was the Nile. Uh, It was Pharaoh who pretended to be a god, right? But the real source of our life is the one who has power over the Nile, and that's God. And so um, the question being raised here is, what is the source of our life? Who sustains us? And so Moses and Aaron, through the power of God, uh, make the Nile uh, turn to blood, and there's blood everywhere. Um, They do just as the Lord commanded. But then, of course, the magicians do the exact same by their secret arts. Now, this sounds impressive on the surface, but it's anything but. Note that what the magicians can't do is reverse the process. What would really be impressive would be if the magicians could take the bloody Nile and make it fresh water again. But all they do is actually mimic, you know, what Moses and Aaron have already done. So you can imagine them saying, you know, presto and doing some sort of spell and then pointing to some bloody water that's already been bloody. I mean, they're just kind of mimicking what Moses and Aaron have already done. Uh, But Pharaoh buys it, and we're told that Pharaoh's heart remains hardened and that he would not listen to them, that he turned and went into his house, and that he did not even take this to heart. And I want to go back to that verse about the shortness of breath of the Israelites. And I want to contrast that with Pharaoh turning. Remember, Moses turned. He turned to look at the burning bush. And so this idea of turning is a theme. Moses turned toward God. Pharaoh is turning away from God. He goes to his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And so part of what's being revealed about Pharaoh is that he is closing his heart off not just to the power of God and the presence of God, but to the shortness of breath that the Hebrews are experiencing. Uh, And that's going to backfire in a big way in a few chapters. And so the Egyptians are then left digging along the Nile, trying to find water. And this also has been a big uh, turning of the tables, right? Uh, When Exodus begins, the Egyptians are living large, 
They have this whole people who are enslaved, who make their life comfortable, who do all their hard work for them, um, who run their economy. But now the Egyptians are just digging along the Nile for water to drink. And, and their digging and scrounging for water uh, mirrors the Israelites whenever they had to gather their own straw to make their own bricks. And so in the same way that the Israelites were previously scampering uh, to make their own bricks at Pharaoh's decree, now the tables have turned and the Egyptians have to do that to find their own water. Uh, one other thing I want to say before we have some conversation about uh, Jesus's ministry and a tie-in with uh, the gospel of Matthew in the book of Exodus. And so we remember um, that Pharaoh is said to lay heavy burdens on the people. Uh, and we contrast that with what Jesus said to the Pharisees about how they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on the people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger or how he said of himself, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Um, in the same way, in Matthew's gospel, he speaks uh, in Matthew 13, he says, with them indeed is fulfilled this prophecy. You will indeed listen, but never understand. You will look, but not perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. They've shut their eyes. They are not looking with their eyes. They're not listening with their ears. They're not understanding with their heart and turning so that I might heal them. Well, this is very much a great descriptor of Pharaoh's behavior. He is shutting his ears. He's shutting his eyes. He's turning and going to his house. He's hardening his hearts. And yet Jesus makes this comment, not about Pharaoh, but about the religious leaders of his day. And I just want to point that out because that's a scandalous critique Jesus made of his leaders. You know, Jesus memorize the book of Exodus. And it was the liberation of the Hebrews from Egypt that helped frame his own understanding of what he was doing through his own death, uh, so much so that his final Passover meal is reinterpreted around himself. And so imagine how scandalous it is for Jesus, this, this rabbi, this, this leader who proclaims the kingdom of God, uh, to speak to an audience who knew about how oppressive Pharaoh was, and then to basically mirror the language of Exodus, but to apply it to the Pharisees and the scribes. And so I want you to catch that, uh, that illusion, because whenever we think about ourselves being the church, we want to make sure that we're always the liberated and the liberating and not those who enslave, not those who just find another burden to lay on to other people. Uh, and if Jesus offered that critique of, of his religious uh, establishment, we always have to look at our own and just to make sure, are we putting heavy burdens on people, in which case we're in the place of Pharaoh, or are we part of the liberating movement? 